1: Ultimately, all of these algorithms are based to some extent or another on the data that we've recorded about the real world, the sort of the snapshot of the real world as it stands at the moment. And actually, often, the real world as it is at the moment isn't how we necessarily want the real world to be.
0: You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, the commissioning editor of BBC Focus magazine. Algorithms are everywhere. They can make our lives easier by curating our Twitter feeds and Netflix suggestions, but they can also be bad. They lack empathy and we can become too reliant on their logical abilities, putting ourselves and others at risk. Mathematician Hannah Fry has written a brilliant new book, Hello World, which takes us on a tour of the good, the bad, and the downright ugly of the algorithms that surround us. Here, she talks to BBC Focus production editor Alice Litzcombe southwell
0: So, yeah, first of all, if you just want to tell us a little bit about your book.
1: So the idea behind this book is that um, all around us... Computer algorithms are making decisions on our behalf without us necessarily realising that that's the case, and there are some slightly dark arts going on behind the scenes. So Cambridge Analytica is the, is the sort of most visible example of this. Um, that you know, of course, that we found out earlier this year that our data is being harvested and, and manipulated um, and, and then used against us, but. But Facebook's really not the only place where this happens. So you find these algorithms, um, you know, in our hospitals, you find them in our courtrooms, in our police stations, in our supermarkets. Basically, everywhere you look um, in modern life, you have these things running behind the scenes and silently making decisions for us.
0: So, I mean, for any people that don't know what an algorithm is, can you sort of sum up in a few sentences what actually is an algorithm?
1: Yeah. One thing I've discovered in writing this book is that people hate the word algorithm with with a passion. So I really need to learn to not use it as much. But essentially, I think one of the reasons why people hate the word is because it's it's sort of a word that doesn't really mean very much. Um, It's this big blanket umbrella term. Um, officially an algorithm is just um, it's just something that, it's, it's like a recipe essentially it's it's a series of logical steps that takes you from from one from a starting point to an end point right and that's you know that's, that's a that's a word that conveys almost no meaning whatsoever um, but really the way that I think people use the word algorithm is they mean little bits of computer code little bits of, of software essentially um, computer decisions essentially where um, they are where computers are taking your data, running some kind of clever stuff on it, and then spitting out an answer. So an example of that might be, um, you know, your your Twitter feed, taking all the people that you follow and everything that they're they're tweeting about and then spitting out a timeline that you get to see what they're talking about. But another example of of this might be, um, say you have a defendant who goes into a courtroom, Um, it might be taking all of their history of all of the crimes that they've committed, of every time they've ever had contact with the law and then spitting out a prediction about whether that person is then going to go on and, and commit more crimes. So this, it, they range from the very trivial to the, the very, very serious.
0: And is that why we should care about them? Because they're making these decisions maybe without any human input or any sort of empathy.
1: There. Is that yeah completely yeah. completely they're totally incapable of empathy and, and I think that there are some situations a courtroom being a really great example where sometimes actually having empathy is really important um, I think the other thing is that actually these algorithms or, or these these sort of machines that we've built they're not perfect they make mistakes and, uh, you know, anyone will know that if they've ever tried to talk to Siri, um, how, 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 you know, how oh, even something that's actually a very good piece of technology can, can get things wrong. Um, and I think that when we're asking machines to make these really big decisions for us, um, you know, about our future, about who gets certain treatments in hospital, about uh, where police are sent um, to sort of focus their attention. Um, you know, to, to, to combat crime, about who gets sent to jail. I think, you know, we, we really need to have these conversations more out in the open about whether this is something that we're comfortable with and whether it's a future that we want for ourselves.
0: So, do you think there's a danger that we could become too reliant on them?
1: I think we already are. I think we already are. I mean, I think there's all these, (laughs) I was looking for stories of where people have have sort of, you know, relied on algorithms a bit more than they should have done, relied on computers more than they should have done. And I came across some amazing stories about um, people like blindly following their GPS over cliffs and stuff. There's one of my favorite stories, this group of Japanese tourists who were um, on on a road trip in Australia, um, and they, they decided they want to go to um, an island just off the coast of Brisbane. So they put it in their sat-nav and the sat-nav said that essentially they just drive, drive straight there. Um, and like, okay, maybe, you know, they didn't have access to a map, they're tourists, that's fair enough. Maybe they didn't speak English particularly well and didn't notice that the word island was in the destination that they were going to. But you would have thought that when they actually started driving on water, they, <laughs> that they would have <laughs> decided to overrule the machine. But unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, they ended up um, sort of, you know, a a, a fair way out (laughs) in the water for having been rescued. And then a few minutes later, a ferry sort of sailed past us. So it's some very funny photographs. But I think that we're seeing this across the board. You know, that's sort of, um, again, a very silly example of where people are uh, are trusting what a computer tells them to do over their own insight, over what they can see with their own eyes. Um, But there are lots of examples of this. So in Idaho, quite recently, there was um, a uh, the, the council essentially the sort of um, the the local council got a new piece of software that um, was going to help them decide how much funding certain disabled residents of Idaho should get every year, and these are people who um, who uh, need a lot of support and a lot of care. Otherwise, they'd sort of have to um, be moved out of their homes and and, and go um, into special institutions be and be cared for full time. So this is sort of you know there's a uh, people who need a lot of support. Um, and this uh, this new piece of software that they got, um, the residents just didn't understand. I, I mean, it, it seemed to be giving out, uh, the, the deciding these numbers of how much money they should get every year, um, almost completely at random. So some people ended up with more than they had before. And some people ended up with sort of tens of thousands of dollars less. And it didn't seem to make any sense as to why that might be the case. So they filed a class action lawsuit against the group in Idaho who, who presented this. They sort of, first they asked them to explain what was the... the, the decision process and they were told that it was a a piece of software that that they got in and they couldn't uh, explain the workings and they sort of had to accept what what the software was telling them. So, eventually, after this class action lawsuit revealed what was going on inside this machine, it turns out it wasn't some clever sort of artificial intelligence. It wasn't some genius piece of, um, you know, amazing insight that was, was coming up with the cleanest and most logical way to distribute the money. It turns out it was just a really crappy Excel spreadsheet where the and the formulas were so messed up that I mean, essentially, it was just dishing out, dishing out money at random. And I think that, you know, all, it took a lot of people to have faith in the machine before um, that kind of situation arose. And I think we're seeing this more and more that, um, you know, people quite like the idea of signing over responsibility for decision making to um, a, 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 a faceless object that, that just tells them what to do. And I think that's something we need to be a bit careful about.
0: But there's some cases, like you say, we should be a bit more careful. Are there some cases where we need to just trust the algorithms that they're doing the right
1: job? Yeah, I mean, that's the... Serious flip side to this to this story, really. I mean, is that actually, if you think humans are good at making decisions, um, you'd be wrong. Um, so there's some amazing studies of um, of judges in in courtrooms, human judges in courtrooms, where I mean, if there is one job where you want a human to be in to be consistent, to be impartial, to be immune to bias, it's isn't in, in the in the situation where someone's judging, um, you know, a, a judge presiding over someone's future. So. Um, I mean all hope is lost really when it comes to you so i mean they're incredibly inconsistent so you can you can come up with sort of fictional cases and you can test a judges on on how they would decide uh, on what they would do in those fictional cases you can ask a series of judges and make sure that they're all coming to the same decision and they never <laughs> are right like so there's been studies done like this and and almost i mean it's it's shocking the, the difference the range of answers you get from different judges is kind of shocking on the same cases but i think the most shocking of all is that um, when you trick these judges by secretly giving them the same case twice so the same judge seeing the same case twice just the names have been changed so the judge can't tell that it's the same same case um, the judge doesn't even agree with themselves right so it depends on the day that you get the judge depends how they're feeling depends sort of their, their mood I mean there's there's studies that show that if if a judge um, gives out bail too many times in a row then they'll they'll refuse bail the next time even if that case is particularly strong there's studies that show um, that judges who have daughters tend to be much stricter in cases that involve uh, a fee, uh, crimes against females. Humans can't make good decisions for toffee. So, in some ways, actually, having this kind of impartial, clean, logical assistant is a step forward.
0: But is it right that sometimes algorithms can reflect the biases of the people who built the algorithm? Because there was a thing with Google Translate, wasn't there, recently, where if you translated it, it said, oh, if it was a doctor, it would be a man, but if it was a nurse or a hairdresser, it would be a woman.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's if you type something in in English and then translate it to something like Turkish uh, a gender, uh, uh, a language that doesn't have any genders, and then translate it back. Um, Then, yeah, it switches the genders to, to sort of what you might expect um, having read all literature um, up until this point in the history. Yeah, that's a really good example um, that the data that we have, ultimately all of these algorithms are based to some extent or another on, on the data that we've recorded about the real world, the sort of the snapshot of the real world as it stands at the moment. And actually often, the real world as it is at the moment isn't how we necessarily want the real world to be. So, um, you know, if you type in uh, maths, professor into Google Images, then only one in 20 of the, of the top 20 images, this is when I did it anyway, um, only one in 20 of the top images will be a female. And that might be a fair reflection of how many um, female professors there are in British universities, female maths professors there are. But it's not a fair reflection of what we want society to look like. There's We don't necessarily want our computers to hold up a mirror to us. We want them instead potentially to hold up um, a picture of what we want the world to look like rather than what the world is at the moment. So
0: while you were researching your book, uh, what facts that you came across surprised you the most? Oh,
1: that's a good question. That is a good question. Um, I think um, it is about, um, I just like the idea that there's there's teeny tiny clues to our future that are are hidden um, in very, very, very small little fragments of data. Um, or or, 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 you know fragments of stuff around us so the best example of this sort of I think one of my favorite stories is um it's something called the nun study um and essentially it's uh, an epidemiologist called David Snowden and uh unsurprisingly he was studying some nuns Um, so he had I think it was 678 nuns involved in this in this study and he was looking at their um cognitive ability in older age right so when they started this study the nuns were between about 75 years old and uh, I think 101 or so and every year of their life he would test them um on how sort of sharp they they still were so things like um he'd ask them how many animals can you name in a minute that kind of thing and, and test them on that sort of stuff and he would look for how um they sort of kept up their mental ability as they got into older age um but they also, incredibly in this study, they also, the nuns donated their brains to the project after they were dead. So, they could then look for kind of physical signs of dementia as well as the, the signs that were there in life. Uh, um, so, it's sort of signs in life and signs in death. But sort of what's interesting is that it's not, it's not straightforward, right? It's not that the people who have the, the, the biggest sort of physical symptoms in their brains once you cut them open were the ones who were worst affected in life. It's not kind of a one-to-one thing. But it turns out that there might be some clues as to um, your cognitive ability at older age that happened decades before anybody ever develops dementia. Because these nuns also, it turns out, they were all wrote a little essay when they entered the sisterhood when they were sort of 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, so, David Snowden and his team have analysed the complexity of the language used in those essays. So, how long the sentences were, how many ideas were packed into a single sentence and found a connection between that and the chances of someone developing dementia in older age. Now, it, and there, there's a lot more to come on this, right? So, it's not sort of, it's not just a straightforward, oh, well, that's the answer. Look, look at who writes complicated essays when you're a teenager and they'll be the people who are safe from dementia. It's not like that. But what it what it suggests is that for starters, there's so much more about our bodies that we still don't know and don't understand. But secondly, I think the most powerful thought there is that um, there might be clues to our future hidden in these, these seemingly insignificant pieces of data, like those essays, tiny, tiny clues as to what our future has in store for us. And I think that's really what we're seeing now in medicine a lot, actually. So um, cancer diagnosis um, has always been looking at what what state your tumour is in now and trying to make a prediction as to what will happen to you in the future based on what your situation looks like now. But the latest papers that are coming out are suggesting that actually maybe the best clues to whether you'll live or not, to whether your tumour will end up being life-threatening or not, aren't in the tumour themselves, but in the surrounding tissue, these teeny tiny clues that are kind of hidden. Um, And I think that's really sort of both my favourite fact and also my favourite, the the reason why I'm so optimistic about the future. I think we've got a, a, a lot of kind of good stuff and good discovery ahead.
0: Now, that's fascinating about the nuns. You just wouldn't have thought, would you, back when you were sort of no. 20 or something? That oh. No, not at all. I, I was th- tempted to dig out my essays from
1: when I was 20 because I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure I didn't use very complicated language. Uh,
0: so after um, you're writing your book, have you started applying any algorithms to your own life at all?
1: Ah, uh, well, have I? That's a good question, actually. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think... Uh, I've always been like that really I've always been very sort of methodical and logical um, like for example when I was um I was moving house and we were trying to, me and my husband were trying to decide where to move to and um, we were kind of really struggling between different areas so um, I made him sit down and write um, a series of equations <laughs> construct a series of equations to analyse which area would, would be best essentially a utility function for those who've, who've worked with those in the past um, and he, uh, I think it seems sort of um, as I presented the idea to him he was rolling his eyes but by the end he agreed with me that actually it was an extremely efficient method <laughs> to, uh, to decide on where you want to live so I've always done this I've always been quite you know trying and <laughs> use these mathematical ideas in everyday life
0: well, I was thinking that, I'd love it if someone would build an algorithm telling me what to cook for dinner every night, because I always just get home and go, oh, I don't know what to do.
1: So. Yeah, I know, that's true. And actually, to be honest, and you know, the recipe, that any recipe book in some sense that is containing algorithms for how to cook food, so, you know. <laughs>
0: So, um, with your job, you're an associate professor in the mathematics of cities. Is that right? Yeah, great job. That's great. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about that role? What does it involve, and what are you studying and researching in in that job?
1: Yeah. So, it's a lot about um, looking for. Um, it's it's about looking at humans through this kind of logical lens, really. So, it involves collecting an awful lot of data and trying to find patterns in human behaviour. So, there's no real limit to the kind of situations that this can apply to. So, I, you know, I've worked in the past with sort of supermarkets, I've worked with police forces, with governments. Um, you know, you can, you, you see these ideas in education, a lot in transport as well, especially in transport. Um, but really... It's about how people will behave, how people will move, how people will spend money, how people will react. And it's looking at them from this scale where you're looking at large groups of people um, and trying to predict what they'll do in the future.
0: With the book, one thing I thought was quite interesting, you're talking about the China credit scheme, where... They're saying you're using algorithms to rate citizens on how good they are, and that helps them apply for credit cards or loans. And so if they're a bad citizen, they might not get those credit cards, but if they're a good citizen, they'll get like the extra good one. Do you think that's likely to be rolled out across other countries, or do you think it will stay in China? And
1: Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I think it's really – I think it's probably one of the most evil uses of technology that I've ever come across, really. I think it's really um, – yeah, pretty horrendous. I mean, and they're, they're also talking about you know sort of restricting travel visas and stuff for, for people who get low citizens scores. I think the thing about China is it's always been quite a special um, uh, special case. They've had ID cards for a very long time, something that we have um, con- you know rejected more than once in this country. I mean, it's a danger, right? It's 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 a danger. But I, but I also think that we're naive if we think that these kind of Big vast databases of everything we've ever done, connected databases as well of everything we've ever done, aren't being collected on us already because there are these companies called data brokers, where essentially that's their job, right? Is they have files of people um, who don't know that they're don't know that they're in there, and it's you know everything from. I mean, some of the stuff in these th- these people are collecting and inferring from your data is really terrifying. So it's things like whether or not your parents got divorced when you were younger. I mean, standard things like your um, your uh, declared gender, your age, your um, you know those kind of things, standard stuff, right? But then it's also things like your uh, your true sexuality and your professed sexuality, um, whether you've had an abortion, um, you know, whether you've had uh, whether you've got HIV, uh, you know. Uh, whether you're a rape victim, all of these different kind of things. Because inevitably, if, you're, if any of those things uh, apply to you, you know, you will have made some kind of a search online at some point that relates to that, that situation, right? And that data is being uh, harvested and collected. Um, now, GDPR is supposed to help with that. That's sort of one step in the right direction. Whether it will or not, whether it has or not, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've gone through death by terms and conditions in the last um, couple of months. Yep. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is that we don't know what people are hiding in their terms and conditions. Um, we don't know what we're clicking agree to when we're just like, oh, just get rid of it. I just want to look at the website. So, yeah, we kind of have to wait and see how this stuff unfolds. But certainly Sesame Credit is the, the, the scariest example of, of what can happen.
0: And as well, it's like you say, if they're harvesting data and all sorts of things, and especially somewhere like America, where you have a um, medical insurance, then you think if they find mm. out that maybe you've got HIV or some other illness, then that might restrict whether you can actually be insured or not. Surely, so.
1: Yeah. So there are, thankfully, there are um, strict rules. Um, in terms of, as far as I understand, and I'm not an expert in this, but as far as I understand, there are strict rules about um, what, uh, on on what you can be denied insurance, health insurance. But there are no such rules for life insurance, right? So, um, and actually, if you have, uh, you know, those DNA tests, those kits that you kind of send off and and, um, they send you back and tell you, you know, whether you've got the gene for a monobrow or whatever, those kind of things. Um, So within those, you can also pay for tests which will tell you whether you're, you have a propensity for breast cancer, for Parkinson's disease, all of these different kind of um, illnesses. Uh, and you can be denied life insurance if your genetic test comes back saying that you have those genes. Um, and the only way to insure yourself against that is to never have the test. Um so yeah I mean I think I think this is a worrying point point in the future, but you know we've already seen the n h s denying people denying smokers things like um knee operations sending them to the back of the queue, and you know, do you really uh, i don't know there's 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 a dystopian future that's just just within touching distance that I'd rather avoid
0: Yeah, it's a concern because I actually did one of those genetic tests, and I was oh he' ah. oh three percent Neanderthal and all this it's all good fun, but um, yeah. But and equally, when I, I think I click the right terms and conditions, so it wouldn't get shared. But equally, you do worry and think, oh, if someone does get hold of that, and oh, you know, if someone just track you down and, yeah. you know, and find me out. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, completely. And I mean, you know, there's you can you can take your cut your fingerprints off, right? You can sort of wear a mask, but you can't get rid of your DNA. It's you, and it's yours forever, and there's no denying it. Um, I'm sure you'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be fine. He'll Let's be, fine. be optimistic. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it'll be totally fine.
0: Totally fine. It's going to be fine, yeah. <laughs> Definitely fine. <laughs> I was also wondering, when you were um, in your book, you talked quite a lot about driverless cars. Um, and I got the feeling from it that you maybe weren't the biggest fan of them at the moment, being sold as like a driverless car and all of this, but actually, <laughs> they're not really.
1: <laughs> so I think it's very exciting. Don't get me wrong. I love the idea. I mean, I, I buy into the idea just as much as anyone else does. But I also think that there's a real... Um, it's like going back to that thing about um, following satnav off a cliff, right? If you tell people that a car is driverless and that you're li- you're living in the driverless dream, driverless for me evokes the idea of not needing a driver almost by definition and the thing is is that the, the actual technology there's a big gap between that image and what the actual technology itself can do now so at the moment the best technology out there is like a fancy cruise control a cruise control where you can take your hands off the wheel right but you absolutely categorically need to still be driving the car even if you're not physically touching the wheel um and and using words like driverless and self-driving and autopilot, I just think creates this image in people's minds where people are already prone to over-trusting machines, right? And I really don't think it helps the language that's being used around it now.
0: Yeah, because you think people sort of think, oh, I can just climb in the back, have a little sleep, you know? which they do.
1: There's <laughs> videos of people doing this, and yet, and yet, and yet, you know, there are examples of these cars actually killing people when people aren't paying attention. You know, there's people sort of. There was a, a particularly famous death where someone was watching a Harry Potter video um, while, you know, as their car careered into a, a lorry. You know, another example of a um, of a car that killed a pedestrian when the driver was uh, was looking down, not looking at the wheel. I mean, this stuff is really worrying.
0: Uh, So you co-present a long-running podcast with Adam Rutherford. um, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, which um, I'm a big fan of, to be honest. It's really good. (laughs) That's
1: where I'm going today. That's where I'm off to.
0: Ah, going to film (laughs) the next one. (laughs) Yeah. um, So you obviously answer questions from listeners. And I was going to say, what's been your favourite question that you've answered so
1: far? Ah, good question. I like the ones that come in from kids. Those are always my favourite. Not just because they're from kids, but also because they have genuinely the best questions. Because I think they're just, they're just sort of um, unrestrained by worrying like they're going to sound silly. So you get questions in from adults sometimes. And there's a good question in there somewhere. But it's about 14 pages long. of don't you have to read through it. Whereas the question from a kid, probably my favourite is, what's the tiniest dinosaur? What a great question. What well, a great question and actually doesn't have an easy answer. And to, to, to dig into that answer, you have to go all through, you know, talk to paleontologists. You have to kind of dig through the archives. It's, just, it's a great question, very clever question, um, an insightful question. And, and I also extra love it that it comes from a kit.
2: That was Hannah Fry talking about the world of algorithms. Her book, Hello World, is out in September. Did you enjoy this podcast? If you liked what you heard, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher and many of your favourite podcast apps. This podcast was brought to you by the team behind BBC Focus magazine. In our summer issue, which is on sale now, we dive deep into the science of laziness. We also talk to some experts about the threat of space war and we meet two men trying to create an Ice Age Jurassic Park in Siberia and much, much more.